I'm just kidding. We're not going to pray. It works every time, though. When you, and when you work with youth ministry, in youth ministry, uh, you have to learn these things. So, Hi, my name's Cole. Um, if you have received an email from me and you see the name Lonnie, um, that's my first name. So it's actually me. That, that email is coming from these fingers. So um, it's nice to be up here. I'm glad that I get to teach. We're looking at John chapter 5 today, verses 1 through 9. So if you'd like to open your Bibles up, we also will have it up here on the screen. Okay, let's take a look at John 5. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. I'm sure that probably meant something, um, but we're not addressing that this morning. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. Okay, so there is a lot of controversy about this pool in Bethesda, and, and the archaeological evidence is kind of all over the place, but there's one main idea that seems to be consistent in the archaeological record. The pool during the time of Jesus was probably not a pool that was used for any kind of Jewish religious bathing rituals. It eventually became that, but at this time, it probably was not being used for that. Most likely, this pool was an Asclepion. And I'm doing my best to pronounce this, so if you are some sort of Greek historian, or uh, then just bear with me. Okay, so what is, uh, what was an Asclepion? So, judging by the clues of the text, most archaeologists think this pool was a pool located in a healing temple dedicated to the Greek god Asclepius. So, and this is in Jerusalem. And so, stemming from the myth of his great healing powers, pilgrims would flock to temples built in his honor in order to seek spiritual and physical healing. And starting around 350 BC, this is before Christ, the cult of Asclepius became increasingly popular. And he was admired, admired for serving people, serving people despite their class and social status, which was not a common practice by Olympians. Doctors, doctors claiming to be the direct descendant of Asclepius. I'm getting wrapped up here. I apologize. Just one second. Doctors uh, dis, uh, claiming to be direct descendants of Asclepius referred to themselves as Asclepiads. Okay, so Asclepius is further survived in modern times. You've probably seen something in relation to this. With a symbol of a snake wrapped around a staff, which is seen throughout all medical infrastructures, as well as the American Medical Association in modern times, it, that, that staff is reminiscent of the... Uh, the staff that you see in like, the American Medical Association is reminiscent of this staff that Asclepius carried. So... Let's say you had a disease. You were sick with a fever, and you were not getting better. And you heard some, some friends, you might have seen some posts about this place you could go to that like, could heal you. And you, you get on Google, and you, you read some of the reviews, and the reviews say, Asclepian medicine is a holistic approach to patient care. This is true. It emphasizes therapy through the natural environment. Hence, the carefully chosen locations of their temples, as well as care for their patients', patients psychological and emotional states. 
By attending to these things, you would read, Asclepian medicine unlocks the patient's innate healing mechanisms which promote recovery. So you give the temple a call, and at that point, you hear a wonderfully soft and gentle voice overlaid with like the elevator music. And they say to you, okay, there are two steps in order for a patient to be considered to be treated in the Asclepion. The first of which is called catharsis, or it's called a purification stage. And this is when a patient undergoes a series of baths and other methods of purging. You ask, what are those methods of purging? (laughs) They say, you need to eat, before you come, you need to eat a clean diet over a series of several days, okay? Uh, You need to purge your emotions through art. So go to the theater, see a comedy or a tragedy, have a good cry, have a good laugh, purge your passions, your emotions from within you. And the expulsion of all bodily fluids. We have a brothel on site that can assist you in these matters. (laughs) Then, the person on the phone says, uh, 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 but before services are provided, a patient would need to make an offering of money and prayer to the temple. Therefore, to Asclepius. And after all of these steps have been been done, the medical procedure will begin. So you show up. You show up and you go into the temple and let's walk through, I know this, hopefully this is kind of interesting to you, but let's walk through what would happen once you entered into the temple. You, so you eat clean for a few days, you awkwardly divulge of all bodily fluids, you then pay your money and say your prayers, and immediately, you'll, immediately you, you would be ushered into an inner chamber that they would create this meditative environment for you to go to sleep, often with hallucinogens. And, and this is called the incubation or dream therapy. So patients would sleep um, in the abaton, which was a dormitory located in the Asclepion. Here are some, uh, so just some images. I don't know if you can see them. Nope. <laughs> you can turn around and look back there. That's a lot better. Uh, right before you fell asleep, right before you fell asleep, the Asclepian doctor would say to you, you will be visited in your sleep by Asclepius. Listen to what he says. And these dream visitations were intended to be prognostic in nature. They would reveal the projected course of the disease and the ultimate patient outcomes. And upon awakening, the patient would recount their dream to a temple priest who would then prescribe a treatment based on their interpretation. You would go home and you would follow the treatment plan to treat your disease. What's crazy is these temples actually did heal people. In a lot of ways, this was one of the most popular ways of people to recover from diseases for hundreds of years. A cult grew up around this whole thing. The cult of Asclepius actually learned some medical treatments that we still use today. However, I watched this interview with authors Terry Williams and Trevor Milton, and they co-wrote a book called The Con Men, Hustling in New York City. And in this book, they told the story about one of the greatest cons in American history. A man in Nebraska around 1900 wrote 10,000 letters to farmers throughout the Midwest. And in this letter, he sold himself as a man who was able to predict the weather. He was more accurate than the farmer's almanac, he says. And if these farmers would listen to his predictions and purchase his services, he could ease their burdens 
and take away the anxiety of making money for their family in the future. I mean, what if you could know about droughts before they happened or horrific storms or tornadoes before they happened? You could prepare, right? You could, you could have a leg up on your competition. But what was unique about this con was he would prove it to you before he bought into, you would buy into the program. And so here's how he did it. In 5,000 of the letters, he would, wrote, it, it, he would write, it would rain on this day. And on the exact same day, in the, another 5,000 letters, he'd write, it's going to be sunny <laughs> on this day. And then he would send 5,000 over here and 5,000 over there. And then he'd wait for that day, figure out which one was right, and then uh, take that group and send them another letter and say, oh, okay, I, I just want you to know, uh, I know I was right. I don't want you to give me your hard-earned money. I want you to trust me, so I'm going to do it again for you. That way you know I'm not, I'm not just like conning you here. So he takes that group, and he does it again. He, he waited. Uh, and so of the 5,000 people who got the letter saying it was sunny, about 3,500 of them wrote back saying, okay, I'm kind of interested. And he did the same process again. He wrote a letter saying, I want you to be sure, so it's going to rain this day, or it's, and the other group, it's going to be sunny. And so to 1,250 of the people, he wrote a letter saying it would rain. To the other 1,200 people, he would say it would be sunny. And he would go through this process until it would rain. And as soon as it would rain, he knew he had them. He then offered his services for $100 a piece. That's a little under $3,000 today. And, they would get it, and he, he promised them a schedule of the exact weather for a year and warnings about critical weather problems like drought or tornadoes. And boom, this guy made off with $100,000. And he never sent these farmers a thing in the future. What is interesting about this con is that the con worked for who it worked for. And if you were one of the lucky ones, the con was great and actually beneficial. But if you were one of the early ones who got a letter with a wrong prediction, the cost wasn't that great. You just read it, read it and went, that's crazy, and just threw it aside. The thing is, the reason con men, according to this book, are so good at conning people, even incredibly smart and capable people, is because con men and women are masters at using the way our brain is wired against us. They often find a deep anxiety, an unspoken fear, a hidden trauma. They can sense it and they put their finger on it just a bit without you really knowing. And, and once, once they feel like they have you, they sell you something. And being a farmer and not knowing what your crop would yield in 1900 was a very real anxiety. And sitting at the dinner table and reading a letter that says you can keep your family safe for a year, you can know exactly what's coming, while you're eating breakfast across from your wife and children is just hacking your brain. And one thing I thought was interesting about this book is that they say there are varying degrees of con men. To some people, when you think of, think of con men, you think of, uh, Harry the Hat Geitz from Cheers, like the guy who you can never really trust. Is this dating myself? Does anyone watch Cheers? <laughs> like, I love Cheers. Okay, good. Uh, that was just me, like, promoting Cheers. Uh, you can never really trust Harry the Hat Geitz. He comes into the bar, and he's always, you know he's working you over with some elaborate scheme to get your money, and you're like, ah, oh, I can't trust this guy. But then in the end, he always figures out a way to, to, to trick you. This guy is actually bad at conning people. <laughs> His shtick always requires new people to con, right? And eventually people figure it out, 
and the public actually realizes who this guy is, right? He's actually bad at conning. The good con men, the ones that set themselves up long term, are the ones that find a scheme that actually works to make money or whatever outcome they want. And this is the key. The scheme actually helps some people. And in the process, they build a loyal following at a rate that outpaces the voices that the con doesn't work for and never intended to work for. But this is key. Then they wall off the people who are saying, yeah, that's a scam. And they amplify the voices of people who, you're, who, who say uh, that the business plan or that their ideology or that what their, their philosophy is actually working for. They amplify their voices. And then they sell themselves at, or their ideology or their plan as someone who has the real deep answers to life's questions. And then point to all the people who agree and say, look, see, evidence, stories, here, look. And wall off the voices that disagree with the plan or it, it just didn't work for. So you paint yourself uh, or your ideas as someone who can help to control our anxieties. And in this scenario, they say, this is how cons can quickly become cults. And these kinds of con men are professionals in manipulating belonging, manipulating belonging for their own ends. So what does all this have to do with an Asclepion? <laughs> and what does all this have to do with John chapter five? five? So let's go over the Asclepion temple one more time. And, uh, but this time, let's take a closer look knowing what we know now. The temple healing system requires you to be able to pay for it. You have to pay for this health care. It requires you to be able to get to the temple. You must physically, in other words, be able to get to the temple. They didn't have a bunch of buses running to get everybody there. You must physically be able to go through the process of healing or have enough social connections, slaves or employees, to carry you into the pools or into, into the temple. And you got to turn a blind eye to all of the slaves in the brothel. Yes, they might be forced to serve you and purge all of your passions, but they're doing it in service of the gods. So, you know, it's cool. It's cool, right? Also, what if you went to sleep? What if you went to sleep, had the dream, and Asclepius didn't visit you? What if you didn't have the insight that the temple, the temple promise would happen? Well, because the temple unlocks... This is, listen to this. This is brilliant. Because the temple unlocks your internal and natural healing powers, when it doesn't work, there is obviously something wrong with you that you need to correct. You missed a practice somewhere along the way. Or you probably didn't do something quite right. Or you didn't have the right positive mindset. Your vision board was probably just a little off, right? So the temple priest would have, have, have you start the entire process over again but this time, you must commit with more faith to the process. Or maybe you should give a larger offering. Then I'm sure Asclepius would probably be more willing to visit with you. The Asclepion temple system manufactures an in-group and an out-group. The, the Asclepian temple had levels of belonging. And you must first believe in the temple, in the god... You must then practice the process, and then you would belong 
with us. So let's keep reading John 5. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? So knowing what we know now, outside of the Asclepion pool, was a bunch of people who the system just didn't even account for. It was never intended for them. The temple probably couldn't actually heal these disabled people, so there was no real desire to get them into the temple and some, in some way have an alternative story that says this temple isn't maybe as, as powerful as I thought it was. So disabled people in this day also didn't have enough social cred or income to really justify finding a way to include them in temple healing ceremonies. And Jesus meets one of the men who was an invalid for 38 years. Jesus saw him and says, do you want to get well? Okay, a quick hermeneutical note. This is the last nerdy thing. Um, Track with me. Here we go. We read this text and we become, I feel the pressure as I write this sermon. I think about it every time I teach it to kids, teach it to adults. I feel the pressure because we become fascinated with the healing aspect of the story. In fact, the story becomes about the healing. I, I feel pressure to have to like tell you, like, okay, with our modern sensibilities, what does all this mean? The thing is, this story is just not simply about the healing. In the, age, in the ancient world, healings were a thing. If you said that a wisdom teacher, a priest, a demigod, or a messiah walked around and healed people, it wasn't something that shocked them or surprised them or that it, it interrupted their, with their modern sensibilities. It surprises us. In fact, it was common, almost expected in the stories of cultures and religions throughout this time, to have some story involving a healing. So and if you were an original listener to the story, you would quickly move past that to some other thing. And we struggle sometimes. We just like bump up against it, and we can't get to the, the story behind the story. So here's the tension in this text. It's not about healing. It was who Jesus healed, why Jesus healed, and where Jesus healed. The tension of the text is about what the man did next. So let's keep going. Verse 7. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat. I don't know why I said that so irritated. Get up, pick up your mat. (laughs) Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat, and he walked. So at this point in the story, you're probably thinking, okay, I think I get the point of the sermon. Jesus, was, uh, Jesus really stuck it to the foreign religion and the con that was the heathen temple system. You're probably thinking that the, the point of this sermon is not to trust in the world because we're all church professionals, trust in Jesus, and things will be fine. Maybe you're thinking this, except the text takes an absolutely brutal turn. Let's jump down to verse 14 and read the end, because it's going to highlight what happens next. Later, Jesus found the man at the temple. This is not the Asclepion temple. This was the Jewish temple. So the movement of the story 
is that the man who was disabled for 38 years was desperate for anyone, anything to heal him. He's trying to get into these pools. He is literally ignored by the Asclepion temple system. He is not needed to keep the temple system going, the worship of Asclepius going. Jesus sees him, heals him, and the text says he gets up and walks, not into the Asclepion temple, but to the Jewish temple. And here at the end of the story, we see that he walks to the temple of Yahweh. Verse 8. So we're going to go back up. Verse 8. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. Weird note. What? He just throws that in there. Verse 10. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. <laughs> forbids. Verse 11. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. I mean, I appreciate your thoughts, but I was crippled for 38 years. The man who heals me tells me to pick up the mat and walk. I'm picking up my mat and walking. <laughs> and I love this because the man doesn't know who Jesus is. He's not like a follower of Jesus. Verse 12, so they asked him, who is the fellow who told you to pick up and walk? Verse 13, the man who was healed had no idea who it was. Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. The healing has no leader for this man. He's just simply healed. And Jesus slips away. The text is doing something incredibly radical here. Radical. The man stands up with his mat and walks and begins walking, as we know, toward the temple of Yahweh. And immediately this man, who was facing this way, who found himself on the margins of the Asclepion, is healed and turns to the temple of Yahweh to only find another barrier. A new wall for him to climb over. He is immediately confronted with a new religious system new gatekeepers who are enforcing new concentric circles of who is in and who is out. And the temple of Yahweh looked more like the Asclepion than the Jewish leaders wanted to believe. And the day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. This story is not about the healing Deep at the center of this text is a story about belonging. Whether it was the Asclepion temple and the offering or the temple of Yahweh and the Jewish leaders enforcing the law of the Sabbath and on walking while carrying his mat, each system was working to paralyze him from moving closer into the center of belonging with God. Each system was sending messages about who belongs and how to belong. So at the church I used to work at, I was a youth pastor, a young youth pastor. And there was a kid named Brendan. I've told the story before. I'm sorry if you've heard it, but I tell it a lot because it's, 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 it's really powerful for me. Brendan was a freshman. He had a very cherubic face, um, a flat bill hat, and clothes that were just a little too big for him. Um, he wasn't particularly cool or charming, and he didn't know anyone in the youth group. He was just... I think we all know that it was just a slightly goofy freshman 
who was trying on a new skater vibe for like the first time. And Brendan was forced to go on the youth trip to our summer conference by his mom. She said to me, he needs to make some friends, Cole. And so Brendan showed up trying to be positive and cool. And every year at this particular conference, you paid $500 and had the rock concert sensory overload experience of your life. I've heard Kristen Subtle say, it's six flags over Jesus, right? (laughs) Such a great, great line. Monday through Wednesday was a lot of setup, okay? It was the same thing. Monday through Wednesday was a lot of setup. And Thursday night was the ever-predictable emotional overload night that often drove kids to some grand decision for their life. If you've worked in youth ministry, you know exactly what I'm talking about. At this conference, from the stage, they would give kids three decisions. Three. They would say, one, you can accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Two, you can rededicate your life to Jesus right now, right here. Three, you can commit to go into full-time ministry. (laughs) That was it. Three options. Three. Thousands and thousands of dollars for kids to choose one of the three. So Thursday night rolls around and the night is coming to an end and everybody has been crying and the kids are all worked up and and the host comes out on the stage to give some final instructions before we leave the arena for the last time. He comes out, he takes a deep breath and asks, hey, let me ask you all something. If you accept that Jesus is your Lord and Savior this week, can you stand up and let us know so we can celebrate you? I look over my section of students and and at that moment, I see Brendan stand up, two rows in front of me. Our whole youth group explodes in applause to this kid that they barely talked to all week, cheering and hugging him. I look at his face, and he is beaming. He's like, I did something right here. This is good. He is so happy, and I think to myself, well done, Cole. Well done. <laughs> I sat there, did nothing. So the guy has everyone sit down. And then he says, okay, if anyone out here has rededicated their life to Jesus, can you please stand up and let us know so we can celebrate you? And I look over my students, and I see Brendan stand up. (laughs) And I think, okay, uh, this kid has accepted Jesus tonight, and in the time he accepted Jesus, and now he has rededicated his life. What is happening? But again, Brendan is beaming. He's beaming. But this time, some students are kind of confused, and they didn't get, he didn't get the love that he got the first time. And I could see it on his face. He's reading the room. And so he sits back down pretty quick. And finally, the speaker says, okay, for all of you this week who are committed to full-time ministry, please stand up. Brendan stands up again right then and there to commit himself to full-time ministry. So in about 20 minutes, my guy has accepted Jesus, rededicated his life, and has committed the rest of his life to full-time ministry. And I think to myself, what's happening here? What is going on with Brendan? And then I realize I actually know exactly what he's doing. For a moment, this lonely, slightly awkward freshman was not alone. For a moment, this kid who who mostly talked to the leaders all week because the students couldn't be bothered to reach out past their friend group, was at the center of high fives and hugs for a brief moment. And we often talk about beliefs and practices. And these two pillars of the Christian life are serious business. 
But this morning, I want to remind us that belonging is a third pillar of Christian life. Belonging isn't some sentiment that comes after we get our practices and beliefs right. In some sense, belonging isn't built on the foundation of shared practice and belief. This is the Asclepion. This is the ideology of the leaders who policed the man's mat, carrying on the Sabbath before he was allowed to enter the temple. Radically, Jesus' performance of healing this man shows us that belonging, belonging is the primal drive that moves Jesus to act in radical and irrational and disjunctive, grace-filled ways. And what we see here is that in God's kingdom, beliefs and practices, while important, are built on belonging. I think, you know, sometimes, you know, we had these experiences, probably that Brendan had, uh, we had these experiences of belonging being used to manipulate us. We had these experiences. And we can't quite, or maybe you can't quite pin down, when you say belonging, what do you mean? <laughs> or, and we, we can't quite replicate belonging as some sort of program. We try to do this with our, our neighborhoods, like, oh, this, this great community, and like, it's so manufactured. And so we just focus our attention on beliefs and practices, but when we feel belonging, when we come across it, and when we sense it for our children, we move heaven and earth to make sure they have that foundation. We know it. And look, the desire for belonging makes us do some wild stuff. Believe wild things. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying Christianity is a con. I'm not saying this. But man, we have all grown up in some Asclepion temples that turn the guilt on us when things didn't go as promised. Or we grew up around some leaders who always threw up new boundaries of behavior to keep us on the edges of belonging with God, to keep us hungry. In fact, we probably, didn't even, we probably don't even need those churches or those voices anymore in our life because now they're like tapes inside our heads that just run. We don't even need them anymore. We carry them with us everywhere we go, and they come out at really weird times when we're talking to ourselves, our friends, our spouses, our kids. Practices and beliefs are essential work of the church, but they also make great curriculum to sell, books to buy. Interpretations of doctrines and new ways of articulating old ideas can make you Christian famous. You can find a church somewhere that practices the practices you desire and believes the doctrines in the way you want to believe them. But belonging, belonging, this is good news and bad news at the same time. It takes years. It takes fidelity over a long period of time. And it takes radical trust. Trust that, yes, makes us vulnerable to cons. And I don't know how to get around that. Belonging, that deep sense that I am safe to bring my whole story into the light. The sense of trust that my kid can feel safe here even if they don't quite fit the mold. That weird feeling that I belong here, not just for what I'm good at, but for all of my weird problems and strangeness. I am seen and I am heard. These strange and vulnerable bonds that, that tether us together are the bedrock of the people of God. My youth pastor said to me one time, 
when I was, I was interning at the church, um, he, he said, he loved youth ministry because students, are, aren't, students aren't looking for answers to their problems. They think they are, but what they are actually wondering is, am I alone in this problem? And I wonder if that isn't true for us as well. Jesus walks up to the man on the outside of the building and says, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me. This story has an echo into the New Testament. I'm going to actually just end the sermon with this uh, text from the book of Acts. It's like this weird echo, and I hope you can hear it. Here it is. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us, look at us. So the man gave his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold have I none. I do not have. Man, that was like some children's ministry stuff. Silver and gold I do not have. But what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them, then he went with them into the temple courts. Let's pray. Father, I... um, There's certain moments that I just get the privilege to say um, to my friends and people that I know that I go to church with. There's these moments that I just get to say, I love you, I'm sorry, I forgive you. And God, I just pray that um, in some sense this morning, whatever it is that we need to hear to make us aware of the bonds that tether us together, make us aware that we belong First and foremost, that wherever you find yourself, depending on whatever circle you find yourself in, whether you're in the temple or out of the temple or you're not even anywhere close, that Jesus shows up and says, do you want to get well? Jesus says, I'm with you. I love you. You belong with me. God, I I need to hear that constantly. Because I have these tapes in my head that say, well, yeah, but what about this? What about this? What about this? God, I, I pray that throughout the rest of my life, this church would remind me that I am loved, that I belong, and I can bring all of myself into this space in worship. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. together. If y'all would stand with me. And we invite anyone who calls on the name of Jesus to, to join us at this table. The way we receive communion here, if you're, if you're a bit new, is the ushers will come down the rows and dismiss you row by row. You can just come forward and the servers will offer you a, a bit of bread and you can dip it into the cup. Yep, that's right. We've changed since COVID. And they will say to you, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can respond with just simply amen or I will remember. 
first we will read uh, the scripture from 1 Corinthians Corinthians, when the Apostle Paul uh, spoke to the church. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you to bless this bread and this cup. May it be to us a spiritual food and drink and a means of your grace. As we receive it into our bodies, may we we receive you once again. Come live inside us and make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see that you are good so that all will know your goodness. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Will you come? <clears throat> 